Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what power is contained in the words here that you have written through your apostle. Lord, I pray that this would have a specific impact on each of us as individual believers, as families, and as Redeemer at church. Lord, we love you and we thank you and ask that we would continue to be driven by Jesus in all that we do. pray this in his name. Amen. I'm a great fan of New York Yankee lore. It's been a tough year. Some of my favorite stories, though, come from the older days, towards the end of Yogi Berra's career and really more towards the beginning of Hank Aaron's career. Uh, They were in a World Series in which the Yankees went on to win, I might point out. Uh, But at this particular juncture, Yogi Berra was playing catcher and Hank Aaron was coming up to the plate and Yogi Berra had a way of chattering with whoever it was that came into the batter's box, a way to get his team pumped up and to psych out the other team. And Hank Aaron came into the box, it was towards the end of the game, And he started whispering. He said, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark. And Aaron didn't say a thing. He was a pretty quiet man, still is a quiet man to this day. Two pitches later, he drove the ball 460 feet out of the park. After rounding the plate, he came back and said to Yogi Berra, I didn't come up here to read. (laughs) You know what, brothers and sisters? He knew his purpose. And his purpose throughout his whole career, and I might add, Uh, the true home run king, no matter what happens next year. He knew his purpose every time was to smack the ball out of the park, and he did it like no one else did it in his career, consistently, even as an older athlete. He still was able to have this driving purpose to get up. He didn't say much. He wasn't a showboat. He got up with purpose and hit the ball of the park more consistently than any other batter, save one, as far as per plate's appearance. But he was consistent throughout his whole career because he was driven by a purpose that was singular and clear. Paul the Apostle was driven by a purpose that was singular and clear. He was driven by Christ, for Christ, through Christ. And he gives for us in these verses great encouragement and I would say even guidance, particularly to us as a church, what our purpose ought to be. That we ought to have a Christ-driven ministry. You as a person, at the end of your life, it should be said of you that that person was driven by Christ and his mission. Uh, As a family, that family is driven by Jesus. Their king, their savior, their lord. And as a church, we should be driven by Christ. There's so many other things that attempt to drive us. They may be good things, but what should drive us is Christ and his purpose. He is in us, the hope of glory, the text says. I want us to look, about, look at this text very personally. 
What should Redeemer's ministry be about? First of all, based on what Paul says, first, it ought to be, as any ministry should be about, that is faithful to Christ, it should be about suffering for Christ. Look at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So Paul refers to his suffering for Christ. Now remember that Paul's very example is Jesus himself. Jesus suffers on earth for us for this time, especially the Passion Week, and then to the cross. His people then pick up that mantle of suffering to some degree. Never to the full extent Jesus experienced it separated from God, but Jesus' suffering was limited to a period of time. Now the body of Christ continues in that suffering. But Paul in particular, he manifests this in his own life. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. So Christ is our example, but Paul himself exemplifies what Christ did. Think about Paul's life. He was laden with suffering. Things did not go well for him. As soon as he turned to Christ, everything started to go down for him socially, uh, politically, economically, physically even. He was plotted against. He was mistrusted by those who were believers, at least at first. And you can understand why. He was persecuted by other believers, disliked by many. He was constantly having to work to pay to go to do the missions that he was doing. He was a tent maker. He was opposed everywhere he went by his own countrymen. He suffered emotionally. Just read it in the text. He suffered physically, spiritually for his faith in Christ. He was beaten, stoned, imprisoned, attacked by the enemies of Christ, thrown out of cities. He even was hurt while traveling, shipwrecked of all things to have happened to him separated from family, separated from friends, had conflicts even with fellow workers. He suffered for Christ in many ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually, every possible way you could possibly suffer. Paul definitely experienced it. And he says that he rejoices in his sufferings because he sees them linked with Christ in Christ's sufferings. Look at what it says in verse 24, the second portion, because it does demand explanation. He says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body. That is a confusing statement at taken at first blush. What could it mean? What could Christ's afflictions possibly be lacking? Well, we know for sure, based on the context here and the wider context of the Bible, it doesn't mean that Christ's afflictions are somehow lacking merit or that his atonement was not enough. That's not what it's saying. Speaking more in terms of the corporate nature of the church's union with Christ now. Now that Christ has gone and is seated at the right hand of the Father, his personal sufferings are over. But the body of Christ continues to be afflicted because we represent Christ on earth. In fact, God appoints the suffering of the saints as part of the means of which he grows the church. And so there is a pointed affliction that still needs to happen. Filling up which is lacking means there is more to come for the church of Christ, the body of Christ. This is what Paul goes through and what we, to some degree, go through, go to, through as well. One commentator puts it very clearly in a very difficult portion of the text. He says this about this phrase, I am, being filled up, I am filling up what is lacking Christ's afflictions. He says, Paul means that the sufferings endured by the body of Christ, while Christ is the right, at the right hand of God, are not done yet. And therefore, all believers participate in those sufferings. Jesus was God in the flesh. He had a human body like ours, and he suffered on our behalf in his earthly ministry. Christ our Lord is now at the right hand of power. His human body, physically speaking, is no longer undergoing the curse of sin. His sacrifice is totally sufficient. But we, his body, are still here in this world. 
where there is affliction and where there is persecution. And we as his body still suffer. And so the Apostle Paul says when he speaks of what is lacking in Christ's affliction, he is speaking of the sufferings which we endure as the body of Christ while our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at the right hand of God. This is why Paul sees his suffering as something to rejoice over because it's part of the greater picture of Christ's glory to come. Suffering happens for every believer. For every true believer of Christ, suffering happens. But it happens in varying degrees. What does it look like uh, for those of us who minister the message of Christ in this day and age, in our particular culture? It will look different for us than it does for others in other parts of the world. You know and I know that there are many who are suffering vigorously for Christ right now. Do you know in the last 2,000 years, 43 million people have died claiming the name of Christ? What is staggering about that figure is that half of that number, 21.5 million, have died in the last 100 years. So that's a very explicit, extreme version of what we know to be suffering. But that's one version of suffering. There are other forms of suffering that every believer will endure at some level. It could simply be the social outcast status you might feel when you make a stand for Christ, whether it be in your neighborhood, your workplace, in your family life. There will be some repercussion from your commitment to Christ. It is inevitable. Every culture has certain things that it just doesn't like about the church more particularly than others. One generation it won't like how we stand up against this sin or that sin. Another generation will be something different. But there's always something, if the church is doing it what it's supposed to do and preach the timeless word of God, that culture will not like and you will to some degree suffer for it. This is always the case. It's actually God's will for the church to have this effect on the culture and it will rub it at certain times and it will definitely, uh, we will receive something back. Uh, we'll receive some pushback, you might say, from the culture at very least. I don't think our suffering today is that extensive. But I do think if we're faithful, we'll get some of it. I think we're a small enough church now to where we don't. I, I, I can skate on a lot of things I say. But I get some emails. You know, we're on the radio, and there's things I say that, uh, believe it or not, uh, you all agree with. That's probably why you're here. But a lot of people don't. And, and I'll hear some very interesting things about how exclusivistic I am. Uh, that's judgmental for you to say this or to say that. And that's, I'm just, we're just small potatoes. But as the church grows, there will be a wider exposure of what we're teaching, what we think the Word of God says. And not all of it will be appreciated by culture. Much of it won't, in fact. And so we'll feel some of that in a way we have not felt it before. That's where it's difficult for churches to not change with the culture and continue to be what they're supposed to be, speak what the truth is timelessly. Jesus said it very clearly. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me then they might possibly persecute you. It's not what he says. He says, they will also persecute you. Then Paul, writing to Timothy, and this speaks profoundly to me, First and Second Timothy, two of my favorite books, uh, being written at least in the first level to a pastor, a young pastor. He says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To be an apostolic church, we will be, to some degree, a suffering church. Maybe it's by extension that we would share in the sufferings of those who are being persecuted. But we ought to be suffering in some way. Not that we go out to seek it, but just faithfulness to the message and the ministry will, to some degree, cause suffering at some level. I love what Paul says from his heart. And you've got to respect Paul. Here he is, a Roman citizen and a Jew. Very few Jews attain citizenship. He was really on his way to the upper class of Roman society. Unheard of for a Jew. That was all gone away with 
when he turned to Christ. And listen to what he says towards the end of his life in writing to the Philippians. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, driven by Christ, and he found in him, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Paul was driven, driven by Christ in ministry. And the first thing that ought to mark our church is suffering for Christ. But secondly, we notice what also should mark our church is teamwork, a family uh, sense about us that we're working together, teamwork for the good of Christ's body. After all, we are part of a team. We're part of a family, God's people. You'll notice twice in this passage that we're looking at that there's reference to a plurality of people, not just individual believers. Look at verse 24, the last portion. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. His body, that is his family, his, his team, the church. Verse 28, reference in, in the plural again, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We see here and in all of scripture that God's redemptive focus is always upon his people. It's always upon his, upon his people. Absolutely, individuals and families make up his people. Of course, individual salvation is, is necessary for each of us. But the way, that God, the way that God has communicated himself is to his people. And it's a people he's saving for himself. We have got to start seeing ourselves uh, more in community. Now, I understand it's in vogue, or it was in vogue about 10 years ago to name every church community church. And I think the reason why you get newfangled names for churches is because it denotes something that the people start the churches think people want. So they name it Community Church. And that was, uh, that was a, a rage for a while, because, and they're right, people want community. The irony is the very church that planted under the name Community Church really was a program church. And it would have a bunch of things you would go to. You never really would grow in the community. You would just go to the thing that was specific to whatever age your kid was or special group you were in. I'm not knocking it. God uses those things. But do you recognize what we do? We, we name it what we want it to be. Think of some of the newer names you got today. They're kind of out there, right? You know, I won't even say some of them. Uh, do, but I think what they're trying to do is denote something that people want. And so the church becomes centered around a cause that people can gather and rally around. Rather than seeing at its most basic level, we are a family. We're all so different. God's called you together. You have differing backgrounds. I was just thinking when I was talking to, uh, as we talked to Brian, our new youth director, trying to give him a, an analysis of where everybody, uh, where everyone goes to school, just as far as youth go. Do you know how much diversity we have here, just in how many different schools? Uh, when Nathan and I were in a youth group, one high school everybody went to, and there was one kid that was an oddball that came from Tonawanda, New York, which was 15 minutes away. Here, I think we've got five, six, seven maybe high schools. How many elementary schools? Homeschooling, private schooling, Westminster. It's a little bit hard to... We have to work at community. We have to absolutely work at community. If you just come Sunday morning, you're not going to be part... You'll be here, and we're grateful you're here, but you will not experience community, and you will not experience uh, the drive that Paul speaks of when he says, I do all this for the sake of the body, the family, the church. We really do, at this stage of our church's development, need absolutely every person participating and contributing to our ministry. 
I would like you to actually honestly think, when you drop your schedule, to think about how the activities that you're part of contribute to the greater good of this church that you're part of. I don't mean order everything around the activities that we have. You have to be wise. But I do mean that it should be such a priority that you're part of a body like this, that you're building it up, that you would actually say, you know what? We want to be part of this and this to help promote what this, is, what this church is doing. And pick the ways in which you can do it. You can't do everything. But pick the ways in which you can do it. I know uh, Sherry and I this fall, with our kids getting older, we had to really analyze all the sports they could be part of, all the activities. There's Boy Scouts. There's, there's wonderful things across the board. But what we did, and it's not just because I'm the pastor and I want you all to see my family here. It's because I really believe that the church is the timeless entity that God will use to reach every generation. So I want to have our kids as involved and integrated as possible and yet still have a growing interest in how they will then go out into the world and help win the world for Christ. So I, we looked at schedules, had to say no to this and no to this, but a lot of things we picked were priorities based on what would help promote the church and their citizenship in the church. And that's kind of how we made some decisions about what to say no to and what to say yes to. And that's tough. I don't want my kid to be left out of something some other child's doing. But to build and grow community, we have to think in particular intentional ways about how we involve ourselves. There's only so much time. We really have to resist the individualism of our day. One of the things that made our nation great is uh, individuals who got fired up about an idea and went out and made it happen. But when you transfer that to community life, it can be, it can be uh, detrimental. Uh, individualism itself is defined this way, a term used to describe a moral, political, or social outlook that stresses human independence and the importance of individual self-reliance and liberty. Individualists promote the unrestricted exercise of individual goals and desires. They oppose any external interference with an, individual, with an individual's choices, whether by society, the state, a church, or any other group or institution. Now, most of us, if you're honest, part of you is American. You think, well, that's what made America. Then part of it is a Christian. You're like, oh, I don't like that exactly. It sounds kind of self. That's the point. It's a struggle. Uh, because there's so much glorified about being a radical individual, and it draws us away from opening up to one another in community. We'd rather kind of keep our distance, check in with one another Sunday, maybe go to home fellowship group. But other than that, let's kind of not get too close. And I really think for us to have the passion of Paul here about the body of Christ, we've got to become more involved with one another. Driven by Christ means to be functioning as a team, as a family. That's what Paul says when he says, for the sake of his body. That's why he does all this. The church. But what else should Redeemer be about? Suffering for Christ, teamwork for the good of Christ's body. But also, uh, verse 25 and following, proclaiming the word of God about Christ. Teach, very simply, teach and preach the Bible thoroughly. Look at verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Stewardship meaning God gave him something to manage. Gave him a ministry to manage for God's glory. So he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Notice what he says, to make the word of God fully known. Now for Paul specifically, as a writer of scripture, and, and the one who penned much of the New Testament, there's, there's a twofold meaning. There's the meaning that God was going to use him to make the word of God fully known, literally as a writer of scripture. But for us, the way we understand this is to take the, the word of God that exists, that has been given to us, and make it fully known. And it doesn't mean just portions of it. It means the whole counsel of God. The great commission that Jesus gives is not just go get people saved. It's to go make disciples, that's learners, life learners, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you, all that I have commanded you to do. That's what he says. The whole counsel of God is teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. And honestly, I think the best way this can happen, both in your homes as you study the word of God and in the church, is to carefully walk through scripture together. And I think the best way this happens, at least on this corporate level that we're at, is by being committed to preaching expositionally. And what I mean is, is to take books and walk through them and, and see what they mean and how they apply. I think that's the best way to make the whole word of God known. There are other ways that are biblically legitimate. I just think the best way is to be committed to an exposition of scripture. I think as I have prepared sermons uh, for the short time that I've been preaching, I have found it very uh, difficult personally uh, to come up with topical sermons. For me, it's tough. But when I hear the real gifted speakers and so forth of our, of our day and age, it doesn't seem so hard for them. It seems like it's maybe real natural. Maybe it's a temptation to some level to just get into that style where all you do is come up with ideas that you have, of great stories that you all remember, and then you walk out feeling good about tack a few verses on. But in the end, a person doesn't know what the scripture is saying and its flow and its, its overall theme and how they can go back to it when something comes up in their life. I think that's what's happened in a large degree in our day and age. I don't know what all the reasons are for it, but I think the styles of preaching today have gotten far away from really what God used to revive the church. If you would analyze the periods of reformation and revival in the church without exception, it always comes around uh, a rediscovery of the word of God in its expositional form. Do you know what Martin Luther did? Not only did he tack some theses on a wall to tell the church what he thought they needed to do to correct he also, in his own parish, as a priest of that church, took his Bible down off of the table that was on before the people, written in a different language they didn't understand, and he started to exposit it to everybody. He literally walked, this is a, a taboo in those days, where he'd walk through the aisles and show the people from the Scriptures Christ, and he would teach them in their language. They went from just a few hundred people who came and did their time to hundreds. I mean, there was a thousand people going to his church in Wittenberg at one point. No one was going to the church like that in that day. Most people could not read. And so he came and he opened the scripture. And, and the actual thing that causes the most church growth, I think, is opening up the scripture and start teaching people what it really says. That's really what it does. It's not in the books about church growth because it'd be one simple book, wouldn't it? It'd be a preach the Bible. But I really think that's what it is. Everything else, really, in my opinion, it can be something that uh, can excite you for the time and it can be inspiring. It may have biblical overtone, not saying it doesn't. But in the end, what do you remember? The story I told you? Or do you remember where it is you need to go in the scripture to find the answer. One old preacher at Moody, to, uh, it was a guest preacher, I have an evening class where these inner city pastors would be there, and that's where I learned to preach. I was about 19, and I was the only white guy in the class. Uh, Hispanic pastors and African-American pastors all had been preaching for years before they came to Moody. I mean, it was just, I just, was, I just shrunk in my seat when they got up because they were so good, and, I'm, and I got up, and they were rooting me on, trying to get me going, but I could tell what they are thinking. You know, this guy is boring. He is horrible. That's what... And I remember one guy getting up after one of the brothers gave a sermon, and he, it wasn't well-ordered, and it was well-delivered, beautifully delivered, but this older preacher who was teaching our class got up and said, you know what, some pastors preach longhorn sermons. A point here, a point there, and a lot of bull in between. <laughs> That's how he encouraged us in that class. I was only more terrified by the time I got up to preach. But in all seriousness, there was a great question asked of John MacArthur, who's been a wonderful advocate of expositional preaching for the entirety of his 40-year pastoral uh, preaching ministry. He gives several reasons why making the Word of God fully known is best expressed through the exposition of Scripture. Listen to what he says. 
He said, first, because it's a biblical mandate. It doesn't fluctuate with culture, with expectations, with times or seasons. Expository preaching is the best way to preach the Bible. If every word of God is pure, if every word of God is true, then every word needs to be dealt with. And expository preaching is the only way you actually come to grips with every word in the scriptures. Secondly, expository preaching familiarizes people with the scripture itself instead of simply giving them a speech. As true and as reflective of biblical teaching as a speech may be, with expository preaching, people become familiar with the scripture. They can go back to the passages that have been addressed, and they can be reminded by the text itself of what it it means. So you give people the word of God in a way that has long-term impact because it makes them familiar with scripture. Finally, MacArthur says very well, it makes the authority unequivocal. This is why I'm committed to it. It makes the authority unequivocal. And the, that authority is the scripture itself. That's very clear, no matter how powerful or how gifted the preacher might be. In consistent expository preaching, the people always know what the authority is. It's not about the homiletics, which is a big word for the science of preaching. It's not about personal viewpoints and insights. It's about relentlessly affirming the true authority of scripture which is the most critical thing that anybody can ever learn. It isn't about, wasn't that a great sermon? It isn't about, wasn't that a great outline? Wasn't that clever? It's, a, it's only about, what did the Word of God say? And that makes it truly authoritative, because the word, of, word is from God. No other preaching paradigm does this. And what I love about even in our own home fellowship group, you know, it's a little odd, I'm in the home fellowship group, and we're discussing the applications of the sermons, right? Well, the reason why that works is because the authority is not what I said you got the Bible there, and we got to say, what did the Bible say that we have to do? If the Bible has said it, I don't want you to do it either. So get together to talk about the authority of God's Word. And that's what the exposition of Scripture promotes and most closely aligns with making the Word of God fully known. But we are not only just to teach and preach the Bible thoroughly. We also specifically, verse 25 and following, teach how Christ is the focus of all the Scripture. Uh, show how it is that Christ interprets the scriptures to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. That's the whole time in which the Old Testament was being uh, written. But now revealed to his saints in the time there. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that is only in shadow form in the Old Testament, is made clear as Christ comes. And it's not just made clear to the stewards of the Old Testament, uh, the church in the Old Testament, Israel, but now to the Gentiles as Christ comes. So now the Gentiles are being introduced to Christ. They're also being introduced to all that buildup before Christ in the Old Testament. What a wonderful time it had to be to live. As Jewish believers were coming to Christ, had all this background that now became clear to them. It used to be mysterious, now it's clear. And they're beginning to teach and preach. And Gentiles, who don't have that same background, are starting to see the riches and depth of it. Wow, this this is not new. This is something that's been forecasted. Now I understand Israel's place. And all this mystery starts to come to light. And it all is answered in the person of Christ. Uh, One of the simplest ways in which you can understand the Bible is to be absolutely sure that every chapter, every page, and every verse in some way refers to God's plan to send His Son. That's the message of the Bible. I don't care what passage you pick out. You can open up anywhere, and I could tell you how this story fits into the greater picture of God's redemption through his Son. Even seemingly unrelated stories and accounts serve to fulfill God's promise of a Savior. Teaching 
the Word of God means teaching how Christ is the focus of all of Scripture. And ultimately, verse 27, teach how Christ is the answer to our lives. Look what it says. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice it doesn't just say Christ. It says Christ in you, very personally. That is the indwelling spirit of Christ in you, who, who are born again in the spirit of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What greater hope can there be than glory? And we're talking ultimate glory. Glory of the, bestowed by the Father. So the true answer to life given here very simply and by the scripture is Christ in us personally, the ultimate hope for glory. When Christ comes into your life, when God gives you new life in Jesus, there is an inexplicable change of affections that comes on you. Now, sometimes that can be miserable because it's battling with your old affections and you're struggling with it. For some, it's just absolutely eye-opening and so liberating right off the bat. It can be, and then it's in that spectrum for, very many, for a lot of people. But you won't be the same. You just won't. You can't be anymore. Everything comes back to how does it relate to Christ. We can numb it for a while. We can fill our lives with busyness. But in the end, we're always back to the question, how does this relate to my relationship with Christ? And that's what we have to be doing in helping people to understand in this ministry that we are all part of, you are all part of teaching how Christ is the answer to our lives. It's done most vividly by you making Christ the absolute priority of your life in every decision you make. Every personal ministry you should be about should be about sharing and teaching the Word of God about Christ to others. And our firm commitment as a church must be about preaching and teaching the Word of God about Christ. So Redeemer's ministry should be about suffering for Christ, teamwork for the good of Christ's body, proclaiming the Word of God about Christ, and finally, given to us in two of the most powerful verses, uh, and personally, they've been powerful to me in my own life and ministry, in all the New Testament, verse 28 and verse 29, guiding people to maturity in Christ. There's Christ-driven ministry. Look at verse 28. Him, that's Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. I, when I first uh, became the pastor, the senior pastor of the church, I gave a vision statement to the elders, and this was the verse that I used to be the, the most uh, influential in my own thinking and purpose in ministry. These verses, 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our end goal as a body of believers. Not just the leaders, but the body here should be pursuing that end. How does this happen? Well, it breaks down for us in these verses very clearly. First, teaching and preaching Christ honestly and accurately. Verse 28, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Often enough, I get the question, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? It's right here in the text. Look what it says. Christ, we preach. That's literally the word to preach in the Greek. Christ, we proclaim. That's one. There are several words for preach, but this one in particular means to proclaim, to express, to make known a message. And it is made up of two elements, warning and teaching. So preaching, rightly done, involves two things, warning and teaching. Warning, literally, nutheo, means to admonish or to advise. I would say it even means to apply. In other words, I don't just tell you what the text means. And it's like I, I give you ideas pastorally and how I think it ought to affect your life personally. That's where we preachers get into trouble, I realize. But that's the difference between preaching and teaching. We admonish based on all wisdom, which is the scripture itself. But 
It also involves teaching. That is communicating the truth about a text, what it means, what Paul meant when he said this. So it means warning and teaching. Those things together, that's what preaching is. Preaching includes both. To preach Christ faithfully must be done according to what is revealed about himself, with all wisdom, as the phrase says. So our ministry has to be absolutely Christ-driven, with all wisdom, according to his word. Teaching and preaching Christ honestly and accurately. But also, we ought to all never, ever settle for superficiality or mediocrity. Not in yourself or in those you are responsible for. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Mature. You know what the word means. Developed. It means complete. It means perfected. Now, it doesn't mean here uh, that you have arrived ever in this life. It means the process. But someone could be, two people could be mature in a different level still. It depends where God has you, and every one of you is different. But you should be on the road of maturity that's called, in a greater way, sanctification. Being more and more like God, dying more and more into sin, and living more and more into Christ. That's what maturity is. You know, we fill our lives up with a lot of Christian activities and the company of other Christians, talking Christian language. But so many still never grow up in the faith. We live entirely for Christ now as believers. Mediocrity ought to essentially have the same effect on us as it has on Jesus. What do you think the effect mediocrity has on Christ? In Revelation, it says, those of you who are lukewarm, he spits out. It doesn't say he, oh, it's, at least you're lukewarm. No, he spits out the lukewarm. We shouldn't settle for superficiality or mediocrity in ourselves or in our families and our church. But it's not easy. Look at verse 29. We will, we need God's power. For this I toil and struggle with all energy that he powerfully works within me. You know, I knew this when I got into ministry as a, young, a younger person, that it would be a toil and a struggle. But I didn't really understand fully what it meant. And I think I only barely begin to know that now. It is a toil and a struggle. There is just no question about it. There's nothing easy about ministry that is seeking anyways to be faithful. It's toiling and struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So clearly, it is not a human endeavor. It is a supernatural enterprise. Paul's description of ministry, toil and struggle. And it's not talking about the kind of toil and struggle that Adam has after the fall with the earth. It's talking about just the reality of how difficult it is to minister in Christ's name. Not just me as a pastor, but you as a believer and against a culture that constantly, constantly is trying to define or redefine what God says is righteous. And then our calling isn't just to fight against culture. Rather, our calling is to confront culture with Christ for the purpose of transform, transforming it. That's more of an effort. It's almost easier just to hide, isn't it? Or, or become like it. But no, what we're supposed to do is engage it and transform it for Christ. That's toilsome. That's struggle. That's exactly how Paul describes it. Ministry is a supernatural endeavor. I would just encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the stage of our own church's life and development, I've watched some of you so faithfully over, I've been here almost 10 years, and there are plenty of you have been here longer than me. And I think of our original uh, elders, several of which are still elders and founding families, and just the toil and struggle that you have undergone to see this church planted and grow and, and be faithful. I'm so grateful for that. There's new people here now. You are part of the family, and we need you to help us in that energy with your contribution to what we think God is doing through this church and in this church. 
It's not easy. We need God's power for it. We toil and we struggle, but we do so with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. This text encourages me, and I hope it encourages you, that we should be about suffering for Christ. We're on a team. We're a family together, working together. We're proclaiming the word of God about Christ, and we're guiding people to maturity in Christ. Let that be our purpose. Let that be what drives us. Let Jesus drive this ministry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all your word, Lord, just how uh, it guides us and directs us and Lord, gives us so much to chew on and to think about and to contemplate. And a text like this, Lord, uh, just help us this week to think over again our lives and just how they reflect commitment to Christ, how they reflect uh, what he has done for us. Lord, help every decision we make to be thought of in terms of how this brings glory to Christ, knowing, Lord, that you will bring uh, many to yourself as they gaze upon transformed lives and are affected by the gospel personally, as people interact with them and as they hear and see the message of your word, your gospel, your good news. Lord, make us a faithful church. We confess our sins to you knowing that we are very imperfect. Lord, make us driven, make us to be driven by Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen.